We're starting chapter 19, and I'm actually hoping to finish Revelation in the next couple of weeks, which means that I'd like to do about two chapters per class the next two weeks. And um, the material in these two chapters is pretty straightforward. It's um, um, a transition from the beasts and all that into the things we have to look forward to in heaven. So anyway, that's kind of where we're headed. So I may be moving a little bit faster than I have, but um, we still will make time for questions and comments, of course. So at this point, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll, we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you that we can study from the book of Revelation again. We pray that you would be with us as we study um, what we are going to look at today, the marriage of the Lamb, and related topics. So be with us now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been through the first 18 chapters of Revelation. Now we're starting Revelation 19. And Revelation 19 is about the marriage of the Lamb, and we also see the destruction of of the beast and the false prophet and those who receive the mark of the beast. So that's Revelation 19. And Revelation 20 describes the devil being chained for a thousand years and then the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the thousand years. So that's a brief summary of these two chapters. So we're going to go ahead and get started. And let's see, I'd like a volunteer to read Revelation 19 verses 1 through 4. So Revelation 19, 1 through 4. Is there a volunteer for that? We have one right down here. So Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and have avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen! Alleluia! Okay, thank you. So, beginning of chapter 19, we see that the people in heaven are saying with a great voice, they are thankful that God has judged the great whore and hath avenged the blood of God's servants on her. And notice they say, for true and righteous are his judgments. So <clears throat> we've seen that when the great whore of Revelation was judged, there was a good reason for that judgment to take place. And it's actually found in the, the previous verse in Revelation 18, the last verse of Revelation 18. It says, For in her was found the blood of all, the, uh, of all that were slain upon the earth. So God is just, he's true and righteous to pour out his judgment upon the great whore. She also committed fornication with the kings of the earth. So we've covered that. That's pretty straightforward. And it says, He's avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. So, again, we see the judgment, the concept of the judgment of God. 
Um, and it's interesting, we see in verse 4, the 24 elders, the four beasts, they fall down and worship God. You know, the, the, the four beasts and the 24 elders show up several times throughout the book of Revelation. The first time we see them is in Revelation 4 and 5 at the inauguration of Christ's holy place ministry in the sanctuary in heaven. We then see them again in Revelation 11 at the inauguration of Christ's most holy place ministry. We also see them actually in Revelation 7 when the 144,000 and the great multitude are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. So the, the four beasts, the 24 elders, they, they seem to show up at very important transition points in the book of Revelation. And here they're showing up um, as we're about to transition to the marriage of the Lamb. And um, <clears throat> so this is what we see at the introduction of Revelation chapter 19. Um, let's go ahead and read. I, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 5 through 7. Revelation 19 verses 5 through 7 right over here. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Okay, thank you. So very good. So, um... Notice this, it says, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear his name, both small and great. So have we seen the concept of the servants of God and those who fear God earlier in the book of Revelation? And we have. The servants of God in Revelation 7 are the 144,000. And the first angel's message, fear God, give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come. We've seen that. And so here we see the idea that those who will participate in the marriage of the Lamb are the servants of God, those who fear his name. And so those who take heed of the three angels' messages, they get the privilege of partaking in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, and of course, it's all the righteous throughout history, but um, especially... The, the message of fearing God during this time of earth's history is a message that is imploring us to serve God in such a way that will allow us to be part of the marriage of the Lamb when it takes place. And verse 7 we see, so we come to the passage where it says, For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, we've seen the Lamb in several places in the book of Revelation, the first place we see him is in Revelation 5, where John sees a lamb as it had been slain. And then we see the lamb again in Revelation 14, um, where the 144,000 are standing on Mount Zion with the lamb, and they follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. Then in Revelation 15, we see that the 144,000 sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb. And here we see in Revelation 19 that 
we've come to the point where the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, <clears throat> if you study um, the book of Revelation alone and nothing else, it's clear who the wife is. Revelation 21 tells us in verse 2 that the new Jerusalem is as a bride adorned for her husband. And if you look in great controversy, and I should have looked this up sooner, but great controversy, Ellen White also makes it very clear, I believe page 427, um, Ellen White says here, she quotes Revelation 21-2, which talks about the bride, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Then she says, clearly then, the bride represents the holy city. This is page 427 of Great Controversy. And the virgins that go out to meet the bridegroom are a symbol of the church. In the Revelation, the people of God are said to be guests at the marriage supper. If guests, they cannot be represented also as the bride. And then she goes on to say, he will see, receive the new Jerusalem, the capital of his kingdom, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I'm not intending to spend too much time and make a big theological point, although um, it can certainly be said in other places of Scripture that God's people are represented as his bride. But when we are speaking specifically of the marriage of the Lamb, the bride in the marriage of the Lamb is the new Jerusalem, and God's church are the guests at the wedding. And that's all I'm going to say about that, but you can look that up for yourself. But notice this. Um, when we look at the bride, notice this in verse 8. It says, To her, the bride, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So the wedding garment of the bride, and the bride is the new Jerusalem, the wedding garment is the righteousness of the saints. So clearly God's people have a part in either delaying or hastening this wedding. Um, they are represented as the wedding garment, not the bride, but the wedding garment. And there is a difference between the bride and the wedding garment. Um, I, w I mean, I've never been a bride, never will be. Bad analogy. But when I got married to Joel. She was the bride and she wore her wedding dress, which was different than her. Does that make sense? So just making a, a, an obvious point. So the, the, the linen or the wedding garment at the marriage of the Lamb is the righteousness of the saints. And that's what the Bible says. Now, the other key point I want to make about this, and the New Jerusalem is represented as the capital it's the capital of God's kingdom. Now, if you remember the beginning of the sounding of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, when the seventh trumpet began to sound, the voices in heaven were saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, as we recall, when the seventh trumpet began to sound, we hear that voice that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And then at the end of that phrase, we see that the temple of God was opened in heaven. There was seen the Ark of His Testament. So that's 1844, the beginning of the judgment. So in 1844, 
Christ as high priest went into the most holy place. And it was from that time that he went to receive his kingdom or his bride. And it was also the time that the sanctuary should be cleansed. And it's interesting that the wedding garment that clothes the new Jerusalem or the bride is described as the righteousness of the saints. And the point here is, is that when, when God's people are cleansed, when they have the righteousness of Christ completely, then the bride can be clothed in a spotless wedding garment. So the cleansing of the sanctuary is linked with the timing of the marriage of the Lamb. The bride is the new Jerusalem. The wedding garment is God's people. And the bride will not be able to put on a clean, spotless wedding garment until Christ finishes his work of cleansing in the sanctuary, which is what he set out to do at the sounding of the seventh trumpet when he went to receive his kingdom. But his kingdom won't be ready to be received until God's people are cleansed. So that's the key point about the marriage of the Lamb. And there are people that get into a debate about is the, the bride God's church or is it the New Jerusalem? Well, if you just stick with Revelation 19 and 21 and Ellen White, it's clear that the bride is New Jerusalem. The wedding garment is God's people. And it's as simple as that. And continuing on, in verse 9, it says, And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, <clears throat> this Revelation 19.10, of course, is a famous verse in Adventism. We use this as one of our verses to prove that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's true. The context of this is that John fell down to worship an angel. And an angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. I'm not worthy to be worshipped. Worship God. And he says, I'm a thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, <clears throat> we do like to point out that the prophetic gift is in the remnant church. The remnant church in Revelation twelve seventeen are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, it would be reasonable to believe that God's remnant church would have the prophetic gift in its midst. So we make no apologies to say that we have the prophetic gift in the remnant church through the inspired writings of Ellen G. White. Now, <clears throat> the one thing I will say as well is that <clears throat> God gives special understanding of prophecy to his remnant church. And obviously, he, he does that through Ellen White. But also, if you look at the pioneers who started our church, um, he, he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, helped them to come to a clear understanding of what the prophecies of the Bible were. And you could even say William Miller 
had that gift. Now, he wasn't a prophet, but he had an understanding of the prophecies of, of the Bible in a way that nobody else during his time did. Now, he um, didn't live to the point that <clears throat> he accepted the Sabbath, and the remnant, of course, includes Sabbath keepers. But the gift of prophecy, or the spirit of prophecy, sure, it's the prophetic gift through Ellen White. But if you look at all the other churches out there, the Remnant Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is the only church that really understands Daniel and Revelation. Everybody else has some unusual interpretation about a rapture, a secret rapture, or taking the 70th of the 70 weeks and putting it out into the future, um, 2,300 days being literal days, and applying to Antiochus Epiphanes, or all sorts of things. But the Remnant Church understands what these prophecies mean. So, absolutely, Ellen White is part of the spirit of prophecy. But having an understanding of what the, the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation mean is also um, a blessing that the remnant church has. And it's, it's a blessing because if we understand these teachings, we will not be deceived in the last days when all sorts of interesting and funny things start to happen and people come back from the dead and say, oh, Revelation's wrong, but I know what it really means and that sort of thing. But when we know that, hey, the dead can't come back to life, that takes care of that problem. And then we say, well, you're obviously not speaking according to the Bible, so you're out. And get thee behind me, Satan, and that's it. So, the purpose for prophecy is to keep God's people. One of the purposes of prophecy is to keep God's people from being deceived in the last days. And we have that understanding. So there's no excuse. Um, so that's that. Let's go ahead. Um, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 11 through 13. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 13. Revelation 19, verses... 11 through 13. Eric, why don't you... <clears throat> 11 through 13, yeah. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And actually, why don't you read through verse 16? Read down through verse 16. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, thank you very much. Now it's interesting that last verse where it says he has on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That reminds us of the beginning of the sounding of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 where it says the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But there's some other interesting characteristics. Clearly we see that the person being described as sitting on this white horse is Jesus Christ. Um, his eyes as a flame of fire. We can go back to Revelation 1 to see the same comparison. He's, the, he's called faithful and true. He doth judge and make war. 
Um, we can clearly see Jesus as judge here. He's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. John 1, the Word was made flesh. So we know that we're talking about Jesus here. Now, it's interesting. Um, we see that he's making war here. We see that he's out to destroy. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we think of Jesus as the good shepherd who shepherds his sheep in a loving manner and brings all the sheep into the fold. Now, when you look at verse 15, it says he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Now, this is interesting. The rod of iron is a comparison to the shepherd's rod. Now, not the group of shepherd's rod, but the shepherd who had a rod who guided his sheep. And there were two ends to that rod. One was a sharp end, the other was a soft end. The soft end, the shepherd would use to guide his sheep to come together. The other end, he would use to kill wild animals. And Jesus as the shepherd, here in Revelation 19, he's gathered his sheep together already. Now he's out to kill and destroy those who would do away with his sheep. And we see that he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, and he's going to smite the nations um, who have been wicked. So um, when we think of the concept of the good shepherd, you know, you think of the song, gentle shepherd, come and lead us and all that, and that's true. But a shepherd, if a wild animal came in, he'd go out and kill the wild animal. So he wasn't so gentle to that wild animal. So you have to think of the shepherd in, in two phases. And... That's what Revelation 19 is showing us here. Um, now, let's go ahead and um, read verses. Actually, I volunteer to read 17 through 21. Let's see. Angie, why don't you read verses 17 through 21? And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Okay. Now, this is an interesting passage. Um, so, <clears throat> in verse 17, we see the invitation to come gather yourselves to the supper of the great God. And then verse 18, it says that you can eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, and of them that sit on them both free and bond, small and great. Now, <clears throat> as William Miller says, you take things literal when they can be taken literally and symbolically when they should be taken symbolically. Um, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we don't expect that, that the righteous are actually going to be eating 
the actual flesh of the kings of the earth and so forth. Um, and right, right. So, so this is um, clearly symbolic language, but what you see happening here is that the kings of the earth and their armies are gathered together to make war against the lamb, or he who sits on the horse. So <clears throat> you see that there's a, a battle between God and his people and, and the wicked. And the context, of course, of this whole chapter of Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ because the marriage supper of the lamb will take place when Christ comes to receive his kingdom in the clouds of heaven. And when we come to that point, when the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gather together to make war against him that sat on the horse, then when we get to verse 20, we see that the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So we've seen the beast and the false prophet already in Revelation. Um, there's the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet in Revelation 16. And we've studied that, but those are the three unclean spirits, spiritualism, apostate, Protestantism, and um, the papacy. And the beast here, again, is referring to the same beast that had seven heads and ten horns who received his power from the dragon. That's papal Rome. The false prophet who wrought miracles before the beast, deceived them that have received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. The false prophet is the same as the second beast of Revelation 13, which causes those on the earth to receive the mark of the beast. So we've already studied that, so that's a review. But So what happens here is the beast and the false prophet and those who receive the mark of the beast, they're cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now, it's interesting, when you study Revelation chapter 20, there's also a lake of fire with brimstone, and that's at the end of the thousand years. So you ask the question, well, are we talking about the same event here? And when you look at it, and I was going to read a quote from James White. This is in the Bible commentary. But um, let's see, let me find this quote. Sorry. James White makes a quote, and if I can't find it, I'll just summarize what he said. Oh, no wonder I'm in the wrong It's Review and Herald, January 21, 1862. He's making a point about Revelation 19, verse 20. He says, So if you please, there are two lakes of fire, one to each end of the 1,000 years. And at the beginning of the 1,000 years, and James White was pretty succinct in how he said things, um, at the beginning of the thousand years, when Christ comes the second time, there will be a lake of fire for the wicked. That includes the beast and the false prophet. Those who had received the mark of the beast, and that, of course, is just before the second coming, they are cast into the lake of fire. And the remnant were slain. The word remnant here, it's not the remnant church. It's the rest of those who had received the mark of the beast were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So we see them at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, just before the marriage takes place, Christ comes to receive his people, and he will destroy those who try to destroy his people. 
um, the wild animals or beasts, if you will, who are trying to destroy his sheep, he will smite them with a rod of iron and he will take his people home with him to partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's Revelation 19. And we're going to move on to Revelation chapter 20. And I'd like a volunteer to read verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Right down here. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Okay. Thank you very much. You know, what's interesting here is we're talking about the beginning of the 1,000 years, and we see a nice description of the work of the devil that he's done while he's had free reign on this earth. We see that he has deceived the nations, um, and he's described as the dragon, the old serpent, and the old serpent makes reference to the, the time that he deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden as the serpent. And as the dragon, he, this is the same dragon who gave his power, seat, and authority to the beast who had seven heads and ten horns during the 1260 years and also um, during the time when people received the mark of the beast and so forth. So that's the work of the dragon. The whole world is deceived through him except for the remnant, and so the dragon is wroth with that group of people. But during the thousand years, he is bound up and is not able to do that work for a thousand years. So that's good news. But then we see that he's going to be loosed for a little season. And if he's going to be loosed for a little season at the end of the thousand years, that means that he's going to go back to his work of deception for a little season after the thousand years are finished. That's pretty straightforward. And... Let's go ahead and read um, verses 4 through 6. A volunteer to read verses 4 through 6 of Revelation chapter 20. Um, right down here. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, thank you. So we see some beautiful promises to look forward to here. Now, what's interesting is so during the thousand years we see thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. Who are these who are sitting on the, the thrones and judgment is given unto them? It's those who did not receive the mark of the beast. Now, 
do you remember the message to Laodicea, to him who overcomes even as I also overcame? To them will I grant to sit with me on my throne even as I also overcame. So the message to Laodicea is, if you overcome even as I overcame, you will sit on my throne even as I sat on my father's throne. And here we see that promise fulfilled. And it's the judgment hour church, the Laodicea church, that will face the test of whether or not to receive the mark of the beast. And so those who overcome that test of either worshiping man versus worshiping God, those who overcome will sit on thrones and judgment will be given to them. Now here's the thing. Just because you overcome doesn't mean that you will live to see the second coming without seeing death first. Notice what it says. We see the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. So there may be some of us here who we say, you know what? I am not going to receive the mark of the beast because I love Jesus and I know his truth no matter what. And because of that, we will be beheaded or lose our lives for being faithful to the Lord. And it's, again, the concept of being faithful unto death, just as Jesus was. He was faithful unto death, and God's last day people will be as well. We will not sell ourselves out for worshiping man and um, the way Esau, Esau did by selling his birthright for a mess of pottage. So they live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. Now, really, this should transition to verse 6. It says, this is the first resurrection. That doesn't totally make sense to say that, well, the rest of the dead lived again until the thousand years were finished and then call that the first resurrection. The first resurrection goes on in verse 6 where it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. And then here's the concept clearly of a first and a second death. The second death happens at the end of the thousand years. First death um, is any time before that. And if you have part in the first resurrection, the second death has no power on you. Of course, there is the exception Revelation 1-7 tells us that he comes with clouds, every eye shall see him, they also which pierced him. So some people will be part of the first resurrection, they will be destroyed at that resurrection, and will come up again in the second resurrection. So that's pretty straightforward. And then um, I'll just read a couple of verses here. Verse 7, it says, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So we saw earlier that Satan would be loosed for a little season. We see that he's loosed at the end of the thousand years. And what he's going to do, he's going to do what he did before the thousand years, and that is to deceive the nations. So he hasn't changed. He's still the same. He's going to deceive the nations. And what happens Verse 8, he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, here's the key point. This is known as the battle of Gog and Magog. It's not the battle of Armageddon. Battle of Armageddon takes place during Jacob's time of trouble, during the seven last plagues. Battle of Gog and Magog takes place at the end of the thousand years when Satan goes out to deceive all the wicked who have ever lived and, and he tells them, hey, we're strong enough to overtake the city. We have a lot more than, than the people that are inside the city. And so that's the battle of Gog and Magog. It's the last battle. And once that point is reached, God is vindicated to initiate the final destruction of the wicked because they haven't changed. They have the same character. They're out to destroy God once and for all. Even though they know they're on the losing team, 
and God and all the righteous are inside the New Jerusalem, they still think that they can destroy God and all the righteous and run this world according to the principles of Satan. And it's not going to happen. God will never let that happen. And so verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and and devoured them. So where did the fire come from? It came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And I've heard people try to get around this verse to say, well, God really doesn't destroy. And the argument that they use is they go to Job and they say, when the servant came to Job and said, God just sent fire and destroyed your sheep or your children or something, it was a misconception of God that they had. It wasn't God that sent that. It was Satan who sent that fire. It was, and so to, but then people say, well, see, it was really Satan who sent the fire in Job, but it said God sent the fire. So therefore, Revelation 20 verse 9 doesn't really mean what it says. That's a bunch of nonsense. The Bible says what it says. It's straightforward. There's no getting around it. God sends the fire out of heaven, devours the wicked, and it's an act of mercy because we don't need any more wickedness here on this earth. Um, And we're going to wrap up chapter 20 here. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And then verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works so that's an interesting concept notice that every man is judged according to their works so if works don't mean anything why are we judged according to our works and of course the judgment hour church can answer that question because it's in the judgment hour church that the mystery of God has finished Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if Christ is in us, our works will represent the righteousness of Christ. We will do his works. So really the judgment comes down to, do we, have we surrendered our life to Christ so that our works are his works, or are our works our own works, which are wicked and sinful? And so to say that you can keep sinning and still be covered with the righteousness of Christ does disservice to the teaching of Scripture, which says that God's people will have Christ in them, and his works will be seen in their lives. And so we'll finish up here, verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So it's pretty straightforward. If we're faithful, if our works are according to Christ's works, if Christ is in our hearts, we will be found faithful. We will not partake of the second death. If we do things our own way and we reject Christ, we will see the second death. But God has given us his three messages of mercy so that we don't have to partake of that. And that's the good news of Revelation. And we will continue next week in chapter 21 and probably chapter 22. Thank you, everyone.